Thank you, Alex. I know where to go if ever my ego needs a boost. Thank the Lord for his help. This, I really, really struggled this week to, to study and put in, the, put in the hours of preparation. Found myself distracted, um, tired, and uh, asked to go get ice packs and other things while I was working. <laughs> so uh, anyhow, um, trust that the Lord will continue to help and bless us tonight. If you have your Bibles, turn with me, if you would, to the book of Zechariah, book of Zechariah, chapter 1. One of the things that you should know by now, here I've been here two years, is I don't like to get in a hurry when it comes to God's Word. Some of you probably wish I would, especially when it gets about 1230 on Sunday afternoon. I just find that, that God's Word is just so rich, and uh, so we're not going to be looking at too many scriptures, we're not even going to get, I guess this is the third sermon out of Zechariah 1, and we're not even finishing the chapter this, this evening, and uh, you're probably going to wonder, well, when are we going to finish Zechariah, and uh, we'll finish it whenever the Lord lets us finish it, I guess, but um, I, just don't, I just don't want to be in a hurry with God's Word. You know, we... We so rarely, so rarely get an opportunity to gather together and study His Word. You say, we do it three times a week. What are you talking about? Well, it seems to me that the apostles did it daily. They did it daily. And, and we get twice a week, we do it twice on Sunday, but we, rarely it's so rare for us to get to just to be able to spend these times, these moments together with the most important gift, physical gift, I should say, that, that God has given us, the gift of His Word. Tonight is a theme that probably you've heard many, many times. This is one of the central themes of Scripture. And uh, in fact, I know that I've just recently spoken on it on Wednesday nights. And uh, it's a very common theme. In scripture, and yet, I believe there's a reason why God repeats himself. And he does it in different ways, perhaps, but he often repeats himself. And it's because those are the truths that are probably the hardest for us to get through to our, at least mine, I won't say yours, but at least my thick head. And so I invite you to stand with me as we look at Zechariah. Upon the four and twentieth day of the eleventh month, which is the month Seba, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Erechai, the son of Edo, the prophet, saying, I saw by night, and behold, a man riding upon a red horse, and he stood among the myrtle trees that were in the bottom, and behind him were there red horses, speckled and white. Then said I, O Lord, what are these? 
And the angel that talked with me said unto me, I will show thee what these be. And the man that stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are they whom the Lord hath sent to walk to and fro through the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord that stood among the myrtle trees and said, We have walked to and fro through the earth, and behold, all the earth sitteth still and is at rest. Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long wilt thou have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against which thou hast had indignation these threescore and ten years? And the Lord answered the angel that talked with me with good words and comfortable words. So the angel that commanded with me said unto me, Cry thou, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy. And I am very sore displeased with the heathen that are at ease, for I was but a little displeased, and they helped forward the affliction. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies. My house shall be built in it, saith the Lord of hosts, and a line shall be stretched forth upon Jerusalem. Cry yet, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, My city super Though uh, prosperity shall yet be spread abroad, and the Lord shall yet comfort Zion, and shall yet choose Jerusalem. By the help of the Lord, I want to speak to us about when God seems to have forgotten us. When God seems to have forgotten us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of it. Thank you for your help this morning. We know that tonight is a new service and a new time and it need a fresh anointing. This morning's anointing is, is spent and a new anointing is necessary. So we ask that you'd help us. Anoint us, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. There are times that it seems like God forgets us. It's inevitable in the walk of the Christian life that there are times that our prayers bounce off the ceiling, that devotions become work rather than acts of devotion. There are times when it seems that we try and we try and God just doesn't seem anywhere. I'm remembering a time specifically that we had, we had been really hurt by some people in the church. Terrible situation had taken place. Some friends of ours had even betrayed us in the process. It was an ugly situation. Conference leadership had been brought in. I was a young preacher. And without ever hearing my side of the story, the conference leadership took the side of the church and we were just crushed. And I remember going into our bedroom in the parsonage. And twice my wife has seen me cry. And that was the second time. Just broken. Just absolutely broken. Felt betrayed by everyone 
who called themselves a Christian. And now I'm supposed to carry on. This was a Sunday afternoon. I was supposed to preach that evening. I'm supposed to, of course, you know, be ready to, to give the word of the Lord. And I'll be honest with you, I couldn't hear the word of the Lord. Probably because my emotions were doing too much screaming at the time. And I just, I just went through this long season where it seemed like God just wasn't there. I remember we, we, had, we were leaving that church and we were, I was going to school working on my master's at that time and so we, we had found a house that we wanted to buy, we put down the deposit and uh, everything was, you know, we had gotten the approval from the bank, everything was good, we were supposed to settle on Friday and that week, Monday or Tuesday, the bank called us up and said, we're sorry, we're changing your terms. And suddenly the house wasn't a, uh, a possibility for us. We couldn't make the payments. And so we went through the process. Our realtor told us that it'd be all right. Don't worry about it. We'll get you your deposit back. When it's one of the loopholes. If the bank changes terms, you can get your deposit back. The realtor gave us the paperwork, and we looked at it and said, we called her up and said, this doesn't look right to us. This looks like... Looks like we're giving up our money, not keeping our money. And she said, I've done this for years. I know what I'm doing. Just sign it. It'll be all right. We signed it, and she was wrong. We signed away our $1,000. So no house, no $1,000. And right now, in the midst of all this, really no friends. Yes, there were some that were praying for us at a distance, but we didn't really have anyone close. And we had no place to go. That's exciting. And it seemed like God wasn't there. It just seemed like he wasn't there. And you know, I, I would suppose that every one of you has a story Maybe a little different. The characters of the story may be a little different. The situation, unique to you, but probably every one of you can tell me of a time when it felt like God just wasn't there. And sometimes you go... You flip your Bible to Psalms 73, back to the Psalm of Asaph that we've studied and just recently, and we read, and it seems like, wow, it's right. Sinners have got it better than we do. It's rough. It's rough. The refugees in Jerusalem are going through a very similar thing. There's about 5,000 of them. They're in bad shape. They've come back and, and they've tried to rebuild and they've built their homes. And, and they, Haggai preached in a, a sermon of repentance. The people had responded. Zechariah preached again. 
And the people again responded to the message of repentance. And, and between last uh, Sunday night's text and this evening's text is about three months. It's from, uh, from about approximately November to now it's February 15th, 2019 B.C. For some reason, Zechariah really wants us to know the date. So it's been about three months. And Haggai, in these three months, he's been preaching, and he's, what, he's preached two sermons. And in those two sermons, God has said he's responded to the people's re, uh, response to the message of repentance that Haggai and Zechariah has preached. And God has promised that, that good things are going to happen. Where they haven't been having good uh, crops, they're going to have good crops. And, and God's going to start blessing them, and they're going to be all right. And so Haggai has, has closed out his ministry. Zechariah has not had a sermon for a while. And so he waits, and he waits, and he waits. And you know what? No wonderful miracles take place. I mean, God doesn't start causing it to rain gold. I mean, suddenly the walls of Jerusalem don't come up out of the ground. It's not a reverse of, uh, you know, of Jericho. You know, all of a sudden they come all the piece up together. So there's no great, mighty manifestation of God. We've got these, we've got these sermons that God says He's going to. But nothing's happening. The people have responded. They've done what God said. And now we wait. Now we wait. It's February. It's a long time till harvest. It's a long time till harvest. I don't think they had winter wheat, Dean. <laughs> They're in bad shape. They've got, February is a hard month. And they're struggling as these 5,000 refugees are, are, are hungry and they're cold and, and they're rebuilding the temple. They're doing their best to try to mind God in the midst of hard times. And it seems like God has forgotten them. I've been there. You've been there. And it's difficult. Zechariah says he has a night vision. Now, there's no real good theology. We don't have a good way of knowing the difference between a vision and a dream. One theory is that in a vision, the person can interact with what they're seeing. In a dream, they're passive. They just see what happens. And so he sees a vision because he can interact with this angel. I don't know if that's a good thing. Don't, don't build a theology on that. That's just what some, some people kind of think the difference between a dream and a vision is. But here they are. Zechariah has this burden for the people, and, and now he's in the, it's the nighttime, and, and God sends him a vision. And what a great vision is this. He sees a... 
the angel of the Lord on a red horse in the myrtle trees with riders behind him, some riding red horses, some on white horses, and some on speckled horses. And there's the end of the vision, and uh, let's all go home. Wow. I thought you all would leave. No, it's Zechariah. He says, he says something very important. He does this several times throughout Zechariah, and I don't remember the exact time, but uh, t- the number of times. But, but notice this as you read through the, the cha- uh, the, these chapters. Zechariah, always, almost always, he asks, what does this mean? Thank the Lord for somebody who asked, what does this mean? If Zechariah would have just wrote down, I saw uh, the angel of the Lord on a red horse, and I saw riders behind him, and they're all in the myrtle trees, we'd all be like, huh? And you know, I, I would suppose that probably if you're like me, the first time you read through this, even after you got the explanation, you probably read through that and said, huh? This is your explanation? But thank God for people who want to know. They have a thirst to understand. Thankful for all of the times that the disciples would say to the Lord, Lord, we don't understand what this parable means. Explain it to us. I wish they'd have done it a whole lot more often than they did. I'm going to get after them when I get in heaven. No, I'm not. Because <laughs> they probably have some things to say to me. But Zechariah humbles himself and he says, I don't understand what's going on. Help me to understand. And there's this lesser angel, not the angel of the Lord. This lesser angel, he's his guide and he says, I'm going to make you understand. I'm going to give you a heart of understanding. Thank God for a heart of understanding. People who want to know, people who, who... you know, we can hear good sermons. We can go to camp meetings and, and we can hear the best preaching and, and, and revivals and so forth. But it doesn't do us any good just to hear it because it, we need to hear it. We have to know it and understand it and then go and live it. If, if we just say, oh, that was a good sermon. Yes, that, I mean, that's encouraging and I appreciate that. As a pastor, I appreciate when you tell me that, that it was a good sermon, that it, that it spoke to your heart. But I'll tell you what thrills me is when you say, I'm going to live that. Or when I watch you start living it, start making the changes, and you start bringing your life into uh, alignment with Scripture. That's so much more thrilling to me. To have more than just a want to know, but a want to carry it out. Uh, the, the knowledge of doing is so much better than the knowledge of just knowing. So what is this? What is this? What is the message for us? What is going on here that we should have even pause on a Sunday night to care about this vision that Zechariah had. Why, can, why does it matter? What, what's the point? Well, it, I think it's helpful for us to, to understand, first of all, that the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ. 
whenever we see the angel of the Lord, it is Jesus. And so that's, that's the first thing. Hosea, it makes it clear that, that the angel of the Lord is God. And so if it, and there's other scriptures that help us to understand that the angel of the Lord, so this angel, this one, this, this angel of the Lord who's sitting on a red horse that has the preeminence in this vision is Jesus himself. And so that's important. I think what else we also need to understand is the myrtle trees. Now, we don't care about myrtle trees too much unless you're a botanist or something. But commentators all agree, and to get commentators to all agree is a miracle in and of itself. But they pretty well all agree that the myrtle trees represented Israel. Myrtle trees are not impressive trees. In fact... The word tree might be a little bit of an exaggeration. Shrub might be a better word. The, it's, it's not an impressive tree at all. It's not a, you know, a majestic cedar of Lebanon, you know, with their power and the might, or, you know, a mighty oak. No, the Lord refers to these people as a shrub in a valley. Down below, not a cedar of Lebanon on a mountain, not an oak tree with its wisdom and its stateliness. It's a shrub in a valley. Wow. Isn't that how you want the Lord to think of you? (laughs) He's just a shrub in the valley. (laughs) But you know what? They were. They were vulnerable they weren't powerful. They were weak. They weren't, they weren't impressive. They're surrounded by their enemies. The people of Israel don't have an army. If every single one of them threw a rock, they couldn't stop. Hardly anything. I mean, as I told you, that they believe that probably about 5,000 people I mean, there's a thousand people who live in Altamont. I mean, five times Altamont, and then that's, your, that's the number of people there. This is not something to be worried about. This is not something impressive. This is not something to, to you know, that you would think that God would take notice of. They're a myrtle tree. They're in the valley. Unimpressive. And not in a place of preeminence but they're in a valley, a place of forgottenness. So the story goes. Zechariah is trying to understand, we're trying to understand Jesus to sit it on a red horse, to symbol for war and battle. The others have gone with him, the angels of the Lord, of the, Lord the, the, the other angels of the host of angels have, have ridden their horses, some are on white, They're, those are for victory, mercy. Others are speckled, they, probably, they have perhaps mixed jobs, maybe their job is to bring uh, some uh, discomfort, to bring about correction. We're not exactly sure, but, but they seem to have a mixed job, we're not all sure, but... but as we're trying to understand this vision, 
We, we, we don't want to get caught up in all this. Jesus, Jesus reports. He reports that they've gone to and fro throughout the world. And this is his statement. They're all at peace. We have world peace. Isn't that wonderful? No, Jesus is not happy about it. He's not happy at all. Now it's a little confusing, isn't it? Why is Jesus not happy that the world is at rest? The reason is, is this. this. This Hebrew word is not a positive at rest. This is not like TJ over here. He's at rest. He's doing really well. He's comfortable. This piece is a word that was used for Moab. Ezekiel used this for Sodom. It means this. Careless. Careless rest. This is a person who Jesus tells the story of the man who says, you know, I've, I have... Uh, the harvest is great and I'm going to tear down my barns and build, build bigger barns and I'm going to be at ease. I'm going to be at rest. I'm just going to be careless with what I have because I have such an abundance, I don't have to be careful anymore. They found some archaeological things. Darius boasts this. He said that he had nine leaders that brought revolts against him. And he defeated them all in 19 battles. Every insurrection, every leader who would rear their head against King Darius, he squashed every single one of them. Nine raised their, themselves against him, and in 19 battles, he had them all down. He's at rest. He's in the palace, and he's comfortable. There is not an army on earth that scares him. There's not an army on earth that keeps him up at night. There's not an army on earth that he is planning for because his army's greater, his army's mighty. But what he doesn't know is the army of the Lord has gathered themselves in the valley. And this is an army he can't see and he doesn't know. But what's that to us? What's that to you and to me when we're going through times when it seems like God doesn't care or when God's not on the scene? What is, it, what is it to us when our prayers bounce off the ceilings? What is this to us today? I would say the first thing that we should know is that when we feel like that, we should rest in the power of His presence. I want you to know that Zechariah saw Jesus on his war horse, in the midst of the myrtle trees. He wasn't away from them. He wasn't far away. He wasn't beside them. He says, in the midst of the myrtle trees, in those that represented the people of God, Jesus was on his war horse, there in the very presence of his people. And folks, there's going to be a lot of times that we're going to not know that God is there. There's going to be a lot of times that we're not going to sense His presence. There's going to be a lot of times that, that it's going to seem like God's far away. 
But we must rest assured that if we had eyes to see, spiritual eyes, we would see our Lord on his war horse for his people. Jesus was not sitting on his throne comfortable. Jesus was not pacing the halls of heaven, concerned and worried about what to do. He wasn't stressing out. Praise God. He wasn't off taking a nap. He wasn't in Hawaii in a hammock somewhere. He was on his war horse. And he had sent out his army to do reconnaissance, to find out what was going on in the world. And he knew exactly what was going on, not only in the world, but what was happening in Jerusalem. He knew what exactly what was happening for his people, and he was in the midst of them. And I want you to know, while you're going through those times when you can't see God, when you can't feel God, when you don't know if God is there or not, he's on his war horse, and he is in in the presence of his people. And I know sometimes, I know sometimes it doesn't feel like he's on his war horse. It seems like he allows the heathen to rage. It seems like he allows the wicked to have their way and they win their supreme court battles. And they win their, their wars and their battles and they win their, their political offices. I know sometimes it seems like our prayers are in vain. I know sometimes we pray and it seems like it doesn't change anything. But I want you to know without a shadow of a doubt that our Lord is in the midst of his people. He's in the midst. We can go to Hebrews chapter 11 and we can go through those, that hall of fame of faith. And you know, we like to talk about those that had great victories. But you know, the scripture also says that there were some who didn't accept deliverance. There were some who were beaten. There were some that were sawn asunder. There were some that were killed for, for their faith, even though they believed God. They, they held on to their faith in the midst of trying circumstances. They stayed true. They stayed faithful. They wouldn't give up. Not every time is a person of faith, someone who to the world and maybe even to the church looks like an, an overcomer or even a more than overcomer. There are times that, that God's people, have, it looks like to everyone else and even maybe to the church that they're nothing but a failure, that God didn't use them. But I want you to know that God is in the midst of his people. He's in the midst of his people. And it is throughout Scripture we find that God's people are constantly crying out to a God who seems to have forgotten them. We can go back to Exodus and we find God's people crying for 400 years in slavery. And they're saying, Lord, have you forgotten us? Have you forgotten your promises? And God raised up a Moses. You can go to the book of Judges and you can see God's people being wicked and in a cycle, an awful cycle of, of, of disobedience and then obedience. And God raised up a Samuel who'd be the last judge. So no, no more of this cycle. 
We can look through Scripture and we can find these times in Babylon, but, but let's go on. What about the 400 years of silence after Malachi stops his ministry? And it's silent and the people are crying out, Oh God, when are you going to send your Messiah? But in the fullness of time, a virgin brings forth her firstborn son and lies him in a manger. And even in Revelations, at the end of the story, at the end of time, where we're not even there yet, I believe it's in chapter 18, you'll hear the saints of God crying out to God. They're saying, how long, oh God, how long? It is the cry of God's people, how long, how long? Folks, it shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't, it shouldn't uh, take us unawares that, that we would be in the same situation as the rest of God's people. It shouldn't surprise us, but it does. Somehow we think we should have special privileges. Somehow we think we should, we should have a, a life of comfort and ease. But God's people often are crying out, how long? How long? But in the midst of it, we have to know that the power of the presence of the mighty one of Israel is right there with us. He's sitting on his war horse. In Revelations, he'll be on that red horse again. But he'll exchange it for a white horse of victory in the before it's over. Oh, thank God. Thank God. Thank God for a God who cares enough to not only be present with us, but he joins us in the battle. He joins us in the battle. It's not up to you to fight your battles alone. He's sitting on his war horse. And the host of heaven are there, ready to hear the orders. But not only was, did Zechariah see the powerful presence of, of Jesus, but he heard the powerful prayer of Jesus. Jesus is sitting there on his, on his war horse. He sees Zechariah having this conversation. And Jesus looks up to heaven and he says, Lord of hosts, Father, how long are you not going to show mercy on Jerusalem? It's been 70 years. For 70 years they've suffered. 70 years they've gone through difficulties and battles. For 70 years the, the Gentiles have oppressed them. The wicked have profaned them. For 70 years these people have suffered. How long are you going to stay angry with them? How long until you do something? Wow. Zechariah got to hear Jesus pray. I don't know, but this might be the first time anyone in all the scripture gets to hear Jesus pray. I might be wrong about that, but I think it's the case. Jesus is praying over Jerusalem and over Zechariah's little flock. And I want you to know the scripture tells us that he's at the right hand of the Father interceding on our behalf. This is not just a Zechariah thing. This is a New Testament thing too. 
He's praying for you. In the, when your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling, don't you worry about it because God doesn't need to hear your prayers because he's hearing the prayers of Jesus himself. Wow! Wow! I forget who said it now, but, but someone said, he said, I wouldn't fear an army of a million men if I could hear Jesus praying in the next room over. But folks, listen, distance doesn't matter. And whether you have spiritual ears to hear Jesus pray or not, you just need to know you have nothing to worry about and nothing to fear because Jesus is praying and he's got a seat right beside God himself. <laughs> well, that ought to do something for you tonight. Doing something for me. He doesn't say to Zechariah, how dare you question how long that, that judgment comes. He doesn't say you deserve what you have coming to you. He doesn't say you uh, Jews made your bed now lie in it. He doesn't say any of that. He, he takes what's in Zechariah's heart himself and he prays it for, for Zechariah. He knows what's in Zechariah's heart. How long until God does what he says he's going to do? How long until he shows mercy? How long until he restores Jerusalem? And Jesus says, I'm going to take that heart and that prayer and I'm going to pray it for him. And I want to tell you something. Jesus knows how to pray. He knows how to pray. Sometimes I don't know how to pray. There's times I've gone to the Lord in prayer and I'll say, Lord, I feel like a kindergartner in the school of prayer. I don't know how to pray about this situation. I don't know how to pray for this situation. I don't know what your will is in this situation. I don't know how to pray. But you know Jesus never says that. He never goes to the Father and says, you know, I don't know how to pray, Father. I, you know, I don't, have, I don't know what to say. I don't know what your will is. He doesn't have to say that because he knows what God's will is. He knows exactly what the situation is. He knows how it's going to work out. And he's praying without any hindrances. Wow. I think I've said that a couple of times, but I still can't get over that this evening. If there's anybody that knows how to pray, it ought to be Jesus. <laughs> and not only that, the scripture tells the Holy Spirit intercedes for us too. I mean, we've got poor, our poor Heavenly Father, he's got two picking on him. He's got Jesus on one side and the Holy Spirit on the other. And I don't think the, the Heavenly Father minds at all. He's saying, that's in my heart to show mercy too. It's in my heart to, sh to solve this situation. It's in my heart to break in on this situation too. Because you know there's no disunity among the three. They're in perfect harmony. Here Jesus is. He's sitting on his war horse. <laughs> and he's praying. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful picture. In the presence of the people, in the midst of our weakness, in the midst of our humility, in the midst of, of our vulnerability, in the midst of not seeing God moving, in the midst of not feeling his presence, he's sitting there on his war horse praying for the people. Wow. 
What a vision Zachariah gets to see. What a vision he gets to see. And then the Lord of hosts, God speaks. And do you know what happens? We don't get to find out all that God the Father says. Zechariah doesn't tell us. But he says this. He said they were words of comfort. You see, Zechariah not only, not only got to see the pre powerful presence of Jesus, and not only did he get to hear the powerful prayer of Jesus, but he got to hear the powerful promises of the Father. And the Father began to make promises. And He's going to restore Jerusalem. And His temple will be built. And His city will be built. And the cities uh, around about Jerusalem will be built. God is reaffirming His commitment to keep His word. I don't know if you can hear it tonight. I don't know if your spiritual ears are tuned in to where you can hear it. But I want you to know that we are resting on the promises of God's word. And we have nothing to be concerned about. And the, the mountains may move and the earth may shake. The moon may be turned into blood. But it all doesn't matter because our heavenly father said my promises are sure. Heaven and earth will pass away. Not God's word. Not God's word. I can't imagine heaven and earth passing away. I can't imagine this old world melting in a fervent heat and, and disappearing out of the universe. I, I, can't, I can't hardly imagine that. My mind's eye can't hardly picture it. I mean, listen, I'm afraid of heights, but I'm not afraid of the ground. Unless it starts shaking, then maybe a little bit. But I mean, what... For the most part, I, I put my trust and confidence in the ground. I don't worry about the ground unless I'm falling and worried about the sudden stop when I hit it. But when I'm standing on the ground, I'm not worried about it giving way under me. Because the ground has never done that to me. It's never failed me. And God says this, the ground might fail you. In fact, it will fail you. But my word won't fail you. My word won't fail you. Do you know what? Sometimes we don't. We know it with our head, but it's hard to know it in our heart because of all the things that are going on. And Zechariah needed reassurance. And you and I needed reassurance. And I think this is why this scripture, this theme is over and over and over throughout scripture. It feels like I've preached this. In fact, I feel like I've preached these three points in other sermons, whether I have or haven't. But it just seems like these points just over and over, they find their, their way weaved throughout scriptures and weaved into our sermons. Because we have to be reminded of this because we live in a world where we don't have spiritual eyes and spiritual ears. We have physical eyes and physical ears. And we don't always see and we don't always hear the way that we ought to. 
And we're so limited in our knowledge and so limited in our understanding. But if we could really get a hold of this, if we could really get a hold of this, we wouldn't be so shaken when things happen. There's an old Jewish story. Probably isn't true, but it's, it's one that I like. In the story, it says a rabbi was traveling with the prophet Elijah. And as they were traveling, they happened to buy a home of a very poor couple whose only earthly treasure was one cow. The couple did their very best they could for them. They, they gave them the best food that they had. It wasn't much, but it was the very best that they had to offer. When it was time for bed, they, they allowed the, the rabbi and, and Elijah the, the place in their bed, and they slept on the floor by the fireplace like a dog. They'd done everything they could to make the, the rabbi and the prophet as comfortable as their earthly means would allow. And in the morning when they got up, that cow was dead. The prophet and the rabbi traveled to the next home, very quiet, sad for that couple who had done so much for them. And here their one earthly treasure is gone. As they happened into the town and they stopped by a wealthy man's house, but he was a miser and he was miserable. He gave them nothing but bread and water. He barely put any logs on the fire, made them sleep on the floor, treated them really just as low as he could get away with in the culture of Jewish hospitality and really, really didn't even meet the lowest standards. And in the morning, Elijah, the story says, thanked the man. Said he noticed that there, the wall was, one of his walls were breaking down. And, and uh, he, he said, I'll pay to have it repaired. And he sent for a mason to come and fix the wall of this miserable miser. And the two made their way again down the road. The rabbi Rabbi was distraught over this. And finally he did like Zechariah. He, says, he said, Elijah, why? Why the couple who treated us so well and they did their very best for us, why did their cow have to die? And this rich man who could have done so much and he did so little and these poor people did more than he did and, and you fix his wall it seemed like good was given to this, this miser and bad was given to this good couple. Because I just don't understand. Elijah said, what you don't know is that in the middle of the night, the angel of death came for that man's wife. And I prayed. And the angel took the cow instead of his wife. He said, concerning the miserly man, he said, you don't know 
But if that man had fixed that wall himself, he would have found that there was treasure buried in that wall. But because I had it repaired, he'll never have that treasure. You see, we don't see the whole story. We don't know the whole story. All we can see is the dead cow and the fixed wall. All we can see is our circumstances and our situation. And we don't have all the details. We don't have all the pieces of the puzzle. And so we're left. We're left. With the song that Dean led us in. Trust and obey. It's what we're left with. In the midst of our impossible circumstances and we can't see Christ and we can't feel Christ and our prayers don't seem to be getting through, we have to trust and obey. Trust and obey. Because it all happens, it always happens to God's people that they go through these places. In fact, C.S. Lewis suggested that God's favorites go through it the most often. Times of deep troughs, deep valleys. But there's such great rewards for those that in the midst of those hard times will simply, and I regret to even use the word simply because it sometimes is the hardest thing in the world to do, but if we'll just trust and obey. Zechariah's vision for us 2,500 years later, it means something still to us today. He's on his war horse. He's on his war horse, and he's praying, and he's keeping his promises. It's just up to us to trust and obey. Let's stand together. Amen. Sister Mahan, would you?